0: So, welcome back to Brooklyn's Members TV. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the aviator and adventurer Tracy Curtis Taylor. Welcome, Tracy. I hope you're well. Hello, Steve.
1: Lovely to be with you. And all well. Yeah, absolutely all well. Thank goodness. But obviously, distressing to see what's happening out there and the numbers of people who are dying. I mean, it's shocking.
0: It is indeed. But thank you. For taking time to be with us this afternoon here in the UK. So Tracy, just let's go back over a few um, uh, points. You were first with us here at Brooklands with me at a Talk in May 2013, following your successful flight from Cape Town to the UK, based on the 1928 Lady Mary Heath flight. And then in 2015 and 16, you recreated the Amy Johnson's flight of 1930 to fly from the UK to Australia. If that wasn't enough you've been doing lots of other things since so tell us where you've been and where you've been flying.
1: Well the flying side of things really carried on once we got to Sydney uh, in the new year of 2016. We went on, we shipped the Stearman out to America because we wanted to really take it around the world. And to go to America was a kind of homecoming for the Stearman, which of course is a, an American airplane. Boeing built thousands of these as basic trainers for World War II. So I wanted to fly across America, uh, really to sort of invoke the, the mail, the, the old mail run, because that was another huge source of interest to me. And en route, of course, we stopped off at Wichita, where the Stearman was built in 1942. So America was, was a big one. But of course, I had to have two, two cracks at America because on the first attempt in the May of 2016, I actually crashed in the Arizona desert, just taking off out of, of, uh, of Winslow in Arizona. And uh, we had a partial engine failure due to fuel contamination. And literally on takeoff, shortly after takeoff, the engine lost about 300 RPM of power which was enough to stop it flying. So I just put the nose down and, and landed in the desert. And of course it somersaulted spectacularly, practically wrecked the airplane. Um, but Ewald and I, um, my, my crew and I got out safely. And of course we filmed the whole thing. We had a film crew with us. They'd been flying with us the whole day through the Grand Canyon, through Lake Powell and Monument Valley. And this was just the last positioning flight of the day down to Phoenix. So it was an extraordinary thing to happen. I then had the wreck airlifted out of America and back to Europe, where Ewald and his team at 3G Classic Aviation in Austria-Hungary rebuilt the Stearman. I then took it back to America in 2017 and reflew it. So back to Santa Monica, right across America from coast to coast with a fantastic finale in New York at Republic Airfield on Long Island. So amazing.
0: I seem to recall, Tracy, there was something to do with Boeing as a company being 100 years old as well that you were involved in.
1: Well, absolutely. Boeing were very critical to all of these expeditions. They, When I was trying to put this flight together, and it took several years to do it, so I had to find an airplane that was suitable to do these flights, and originally it was just Africa I was flying, but I love Boeing Stearman's. Those for me have always been the iconic biplane, you know, a big American, strong great looking big radial engine on it you know that was always the types that i flew in new zealand in my early years with the new zealand warbirds and that was the airplane i wanted for the expedition uh so i commissioned the restoration from 3g classic aviation and shortly after i actually met the boeing defense team at the royal international air tattoo that was in 2012 and talking with them I told them about, you know, I was getting this lovely Boeing Stearman restored and I was going to fly it up Africa and recreate Lady Mary Heath's flight from 1928. Now, of course, Boeing have always supported women in aviation. It's an absolute cornerstone of their, of their philosophy. And they came on board as my first sponsor. So that was, a re- it was the icebreaker because, you know, one of the hardest things about doing these expeditions is getting the sponsorship and financial support behind it. But I could now say that I had the biggest name in global aerospace behind me. So when I brought the Stearman back to have it rebuilt in Europe, we actually managed to get it finished in time. Again, Ewald and his team of Hungarian engineers working round the clock over about six weeks, rebuilt the Stearman, and I was able to then take it to Farnborough in 2016 to celebrate Boeing's 100 years.
0: Hmm.
1: And That was, again, it was a, a, a great moment.
0: So the crash in the desert, did it do a great deal of damage or was it superficial?
1: No, it was, it was huge damage. The, the airplane was virtually a write off. I mean, you know, when I hit the ground and I hit it quite fast at about, I don't know, 70 knots. Um, you know, the airplane hit and then sort of um, just kind of roared forwards about 20 yards. But I'd also struck a bush. On the right-hand part of the undercarriage, and that ripped the right-hand wheel off and put me into a cartwheel, and I went through a full somersault, destroyed the wings in the process. I mean, the whole superstructure of the wings—you know, it's all wood and fabric—that absorbed the energy of the crash, and really protected the cockpit in the front of it. So the, the cockpit was was completely untouched, and we just stepped out of that. The airplane was upright, you know, on you know, landed on its belly, mm-hmm. and we just stepped out to all intents and purposes, as if we were just getting out normally. But the airplane was just destroyed around us.
0: I guess it's testimony to how well the plane was designed and constructed back in the day. It's
1: famously strong. It was designed and built as a basic trainer for for young pilots, so these things could take a lot of punishing. Uh, handling basically you know these young pilots would drop them on the deck from 20 feet as they were learning to land so they're very very robust and strong the actual fuselage is a metal framework so you're like sitting in a cage effectively Mm -hmm. and and an when he restored mine had sort of fortified it we had the harnesses that were were, were nailed to the mainframe so we didn't move I didn't even have whiplash from the crash it was it was incredible actually
0: a remarkable escape, I guess you should say.
1: Can't keep an old bird down, Steve.
0: <laughs> in your language, you're grounded at the moment. In uh, in our language, we're self-isolated. I guess all those hours of solo flying, you were pretty used to being there on your own and uh, covering lots of hours on your own.
1: Well, you know, I... Nearly always had crew with me. Some of it was flown solo, but often I had people with me. Sometimes I would take sponsors or Able would come with me or, you know, other crew members. So flying is a very different experience, even on your own in the cockpit. Um, it's a very visceral, physical, dynamic experience. You know, you're in the elements, you're at one with the aeroplane. So it doesn't actually feel like you're alone, I have to say. Very different to, to the, sort of, the, the sort of incarceration that we're, we're all now under with COVID. I mean, I'm used to being on my own. I've spent years um, oil painting, reading. I I have always been one to pursue fairly solitary pursuits. So I'm not struggling with the isolation. In fact, I've been using the time to write the book that I've been wanting to write for the last three years. And of course, been procrastinating like mad. So in the space of six weeks, I've actually written half the book. I've just written 50,000 words. And another... Another another two months of this, and I'll have it nailed. So I'm having quite a good COVID in the in the
0: good good general um, We spoke quite a while ago about the possibility of a film. Where are we with that?
1: Well, of course, we made one documentary. You know, Nylon Films came on board and, and made a very nice documentary of the Africa flight.
0: Which, which I've was... got a copy here. Well, should have. There we go.
1: That was it. It was called The Lady Who Flew Africa yeah the aviatrix and of course it was all about lady heath's amazing flight up africa in 1928 and this was this remarkable woman who had been one of our first olympic athletes she learns to fly you know she's winning then all the air races around britain she was she was phenomenally talented but of course her finest moment was this solo flight from cape town to back to england in 1928 she was the first person person note to fly a light aircraft solo from, from the from, from the Cape back to England. But of course, history has not remembered her. It's a lost legacy. And part of our motivation was retelling her story, making the film, really through the medium of my flight. Mm-hmm. And that was then screened by the BBC and mm-hmm. was extremely well received. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing now, we're making a sort of global documentary of all the flights. And we just finished that before Christmas here in London. Now it's a rough cut and we still need to raise the money to complete the post production. So that's the next challenge, but I'm hoping that's going to be released next year. And of course, we'll then have a book to go with it. So this is, this is the sort of double, the the double challenge really. So that's what I'm very, very, um, preoccupied with right now.
0: Fantastic. It will be another excellent excuse to get you back to Brooklands when we reopen. Um, You spoke about the restoration and uh, the recovery and rebuild. Uh, Where are the aircraft, when I say aircraft, I know you've got two. Where are the aircraft now? They're
1: both uh, in Hungary with 3G Classic Aviation. My little Ryan, uh, my Ryan recruit, which I had at the Shuttleworth Collection for nine years, and I also had it based at Goodwood for a couple of years. When I set off for Africa and I knew I'd be busy with the flying for the next year, I actually shipped it to Hungary and that's been under restoration for the last three years so that's just about to emerge again well in fact I was supposed to be flying that this spring but of course this is put paid to to that but both of the aeroplanes are there they're in great hands they're being very well looked after by the Hungarian team and until Europe opens its borders again um, I'm yes effectively grounded
0: yeah uh, just show my ignorance what is the year of the Ryan aircraft?
1: Well, the Ryan was designed in the 1930s uh, by T.C. Ryan. And T.C. Ryan famously designed and built the Spirit of St. Louis for Charles Lindbergh. So he was based in San Diego. He was quite a flamboyant character, brilliant designer. And he designed a beautiful little sports plane in the 1930s. And it was the Ryan STA. And that was the low-wing monoplane, beautiful silver, pure art deco to look at. It's got a sort of inline Monasco engine. And that was the civilian version now, when of course with World War II looming, T.C. Ryan was, was then commissioned to modify the design, and he then produced the military prototype as a basic trainer. And my Ryan, the PT-22, is the prototype for that military version of, of, the, of the Ryan.
0: Okay, just winding the clock back uh, quite a way. Um, the first female pilot to obtain a license was Brooklyn's own Hilda Hewlett back in 1911, as I recall, and she finally passed a flying exam on August the 29th and was issued with license 122. Now, I know you've always had a, a fascination with early female pilots. Is that why you started flying in the first place?
1: No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I. I don't know what the trigger point for the flying was. You know, I don't come from an aviation family. Um, Although we're British, I was raised, the first 10 years of my life was in Canada. Um, But we had nobody in the family flu. We were, you know, I did not come from a privileged background. I mean, we had a pizza restaurant in the north of England, you know, lived in the rented flat above that. And, you know, there was a flourishing branch of, of the air training cadets at my school, Appleby Grammar School. But of course, you know, women couldn't join that anymore than they could join the Air Force. So it simply never occurred to me to fly in those years. And I had no access to it. I couldn't afford to do it. And there was no way of doing that. But I think, you know, the interesting thing is, and this is a direct link to Brooklyn's, it was the film, those magnificent men in their flying machines. I, I honestly think that is the first thing that absolutely captured my imagination. I just loved this gaggle of old flying machines. It was sort of, took me back to the start of flying, all the kind of hysteria around it, you know, this desire to fly, the Wright brothers and so forth. Um, So when I first came to Brooklands and I first saw the tower, and of course it takes you right back to the film, which which is where it was filmed. So it was part of that ethos, which is why I have a great affection for Brooklands you know but so no so when i started flying i had my first flying lesson in canada at the age of 16. so my twin sister and i went back for a summer holiday and while she went shopping i had seen a sign at the side of the road advertising introductory flights and i just said that's me 15 dollars and i just went and had a flight and the poor instructor he was actually austrian he couldn't get rid of me i mean i you know this this enthusiastic teenager And after our initial flight, he ended up taking me with him on a charter flight to Vancouver Island. So I ended up flying with him all afternoon. And that was really the start of it. And, you know, but again, I I then went on, did my A-levels, worked in London for a couple of years. When I finally emigrated to New Zealand in 1983, that's when I started to learn to fly in earnest. And, And, you know, there were again New Zealand is a great flying country it's it's full of airfields there are flying clubs it's accessible and it's affordable and that's where I started so that that was the move to to New Zealand that was so significant I would never have done that had I remained in England I just couldn't have afforded it and that also gives me a link with Hilda Hewlett because she, you know, after years working through World War I, you know, building aeroplanes, and of course she had the first flying school in, in England, but she emigrated to New Zealand after the war, and, you know, she, she lived out there in Tauranga, helped set up the Tauranga Aero Club, and all of her friends there used to call her the old bird, which I thought was, you know, very fitting. My interest in the pioneers, I'd obviously heard of, of Amelia Earhart and Amy Johnson when I was really quite young. But it's only when you start flying old aeroplanes and my interest was very early on, you know, when, when I got my private license, I then bought into syndicates with the New Zealand warbirds and I had a, I had for instance, for instance, a share in a World War One replica, an se 5 a which is a little single seat fighter. So I used to do quite a lot of flying in that. But it's when you're flying these aeroplanes, the old aeroplanes, that you start getting interested in the people who flew them back in the day, in the 1920s and 30s.
0: You you take on their persona, I guess.
1: Well, you know, it was just such a a wonderful period, you know, when flying was still so new and everybody shared this craze. You know, flying was absolutely a, a global craze in the 1920s. You know, once... Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic. That was, you know, the definitive solo flight. And suddenly, you know, suddenly into the, into the limelight, we have the women of the interwar period. So this yeah. was Lady yeah. Heath flying Africa the year after, the year after Charles Lindbergh. Um, we, have, we have Amy Johnson, you know, 1930, flying, you know, this amazing flight to Australia. And then we have the ones that followed. We have Beryl Markham flying the Atlantic. We have Jean Bat. There was ellie Beinhorn from germany you know women there was this flourishing and it was known as the golden era of aviation mm-hmm. and, and aviation it was civil aviation mm-hmm. that was when the women really came into their own and, and that beca- that has become the period of, of of key interest to me and, and it's that really that i was trying to evoke with my with my flights with That's a true. view to inspiring this next generation mm-hmm. because as you know steve there are still few women in aviation about 5% of commercial pilots are women 5% mm-hmm. i mean the statistics are frankly appalling mm-hmm. at a time when the industry is crying out for pilots you know women need need to crack on with this and I, that's you know that's what i was trying to do so my my flights weren't just flights this was also a global outreach campaign to visit schools mentoring groups, conferences, to get to as many women and young girls as possible to say, look, this is what these amazing women achieved in history, and this is an opportunity for you going forward. You know, the story of 20th century aviation is actually how women were were closed out. You know, Mm. that's what I'm trying to address with my flights as well.
0: Well, you've only got to look at um, the uh, Air Transport Corps, you know they were founded for the duration and then everything was taken away from them
1: completely um,
0: and it's just sacrilege and these young girls were as you know flying single seaters right up to wellington bombers for goodness sake uh, and yet when the war was over that was it
1: they were all washed out but they were they were taking the same risks They would, you know, they did a stupendous job. They were fighting for equal pay. They didn't even get equal pay until 1943. And it became, again, a test case. They were the first women to get equal pay in this country. So those are the things that women have fought through, uh, you know, fought for, Mm -hmm. the rights, the equality, just the opportunity to fly. But that's right, They, they were washed out after the war, and the Air Force didn't start recruiting pilots in this country until 1990, female pilots.
0: Which is just unbelievable, isn't it?
1: 45 years it after World War II. I mean, it's just unbelievable,
0: frankly. Yeah. Um, so you talk a little bit about um, the future. What have you got planned um, back to Austria when the block comes off? Or what plans have you got flying-wise, especially?
1: Yeah, as soon as, as soon as they open the borders, I'm going to jump on a flight back to Vienna and uh, back to Hungary and just go and fly for. I hope the rest of the summer, and just stay there and finish the book. But the way it's shaping, I think um, I'm going to try and get this book finished and then and then head off. Um, but no, just have a nice flying summer, you know, touch wood, and and then hopefully crack on in the autumn, get get the film and the book finished and published and etc. You know, so there's a bit of work to be done on that. And that's what really requires me to be in London. And and of course, you know, my friends are here in London. So a lot of my business is conducted here in in London. So I kind of shuttle back and forth between the two. So it's a a very nice lifestyle, actually.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'd like to say thank you very much indeed for being with us today. It's a privilege to see and hear you again. Uh, Look after yourself in these troubled times and uh, we look forward to welcoming you back to Wadebridge again just as soon as possible. Thank you Tracy.
1: Steve, I really look forward to seeing everybody there as well so as soon as we can do it I'll make a beeline back to Brooklyn. Thank you.
0: Thank you, take care.